Well, hello there, and welcome to the second episode of The Technocrat. I just want to first address some uh, well, house cleaning items, I suppose. Uh, so first of all, thanks for coming back, or maybe this is your first episode. Either way, uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, and the second thing I want to address is that the format is going to be ever-changing with this podcast. So that first episode, I kind of had this idea of what I wanted the structure to be. But after editing it and fixing it up, I realized that, uh, well, it wasn't great. <laughs> I mean, it was the first podcast, so probably could, shouldn't expect it to be a masterpiece. But I found myself uh, to be a bit bored even while listening to myself talk about a subject that I find particularly interesting. Maybe that's something that all podcasters suffer from, but listening to my hour and 55-minute podcast and editing it was quite a drag. Um, so I'm going to try and make this a little bit more interesting and be a, le- a little bit less wordy. I think I got in the weeds too much in that first episode. Um, so I'm going to try and make this one a little bit less dry and maybe go a few thousand feet up. Uh, so using a plane as an expression, just to get maybe a better picture of the macro world rather than being so heavy in the details. And obviously this is a balance because the theme of this podcast is not to be uh, given this illusion that you understand a subject because you have a little bit of knowledge. But I'm going to try and find that happy place uh, between informed yet interesting. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, The third part uh, I want to apologize for is that it is thundering here in Austin, Texas, my home. Uh, So you might hear that in the background of this podcast, and maybe it'll match up with the dramatic undertones of this podcast. But More likely, it will just come about reoccurringly, and I don't know if I can edit it out. So that's just a forewarning here. Anyway, let's begin. China, 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 China. Who would have thought that trying to understand a country with a history dating back to 3000 BC with a language that is so different from that of English, it almost seems like it could come from Mars. Um, And when you consider the fact that I don't understand either the spoken language or the script, well, I'm a little bit at a disadvantage here. And based off my understanding of Chinese culture, uh, Mandarin plays, well, a large part in that culture which languages do in any culture for that matter. But Mandarin has the peculiarities of, well, developing due to historical events. So new words develop when, well, history occurs for the most part. So when children learn Mandarin, they learn aspects of their history at the same time. So learning the language and learning the history are interwoven. And I'm not quite sure what the cultural impact would be on the people when that occurs at a young age, if they're more prone to understanding, uh, I guess, the depths of their history and maybe not having such a short-term horizon that maybe some of us, some of us here in the West have, and especially those in America. So I just want to have those caveats kind of thrown in there because other than the fact that language is extremely complicated and it might be more important to understand Chinese people, uh, on top of that, people will spend their whole lives studying Chinese well, history in China itself study the small piece of this Chinese pie, which is the all-encompassing aspect China for the past millennia. And considering the country also consists of 1.4 billion people, has regularly been the most populated country on earth, has over 299 spoken languages within the country, and that's just presently, 
Well, you could see how it might be a futile task to say I'm a China expert because it's just such a large subject. But nonetheless, I need to add a little bit of context because context is everything in regards to this podcast, especially because we want to understand where we are at presently, and where we are at presently is due to the past. So I have to touch on that past. So this could be a practice in futility, but nonetheless, I have to try. So with that caveat out of the way, we can begin. Let's first consider the scope of Chinese history. So America has been an independent country since 1776, July 4th to be precise. While China's foundation as a country isn't even really known, but the first purported dynasty was established in 2070, and some remnants of Chinese culture and people have been dated back to around 3000 BC. Yes, you could say those are like the prequels of what is the modern Chinese dynasty. The fact that there isn't really a set date is kind of a source of pride in China, as it indicates how old the country really is. While Americans might be able to say July 4, 1776, the Chinese are like, "Oh, we don't really know because it happened 5,000 years ago."、Uh, your country's been on here on the map, I guess,、uh, for a blip of time compared to us. And they're not completely wrong. China's had a multitude of dynasties over its life.、Uh, dynasties being these family kind of almost like a monarchy kind of thing.、Um, But that's not a perfect comparison. But for simplicity,、uh, every one of those dynasties that have been around in China are all individually longer than the length of America's well time here on Earth. China's been here for a long time, and it's hard for an American to understand the perspective of history when our country spans just you know 300 years, not even actually. And this has an impact on people.、Uh, maybe it makes your country more proud of who it is, especially considering China for a long time was. Well, a very powerful country. So I think a good place to start、um, is actually discuss another name by which China goes by. So just like the United States has nicknames, you know, Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, the Evil Empire, China also has one very important one,、uh, which kind of helps us understand China. It's referred to as the Middle Kingdom, and it's in the middle, below that of heaven and above that of earth. China believes that it was and is, for that matter, the cultural center of the world, and this was, for the most part, true for most of China's very long history. As the Middle Kingdom, it had installed something called a tributary system with its neighbors. These neighbors would participate in the system, and it included the modern states of Japan, the Koreas, Vietnam, Thailand, Tibet, Nepal, Burma, and Mongolia. You can almost think of Uh, the Pacific Asia area as its own universe, and China was the sun, and all these other planets orbited around China, just because China was just such a large mass of people and land, for that matter. So these countries for millennia kind of revolved around China, taking aspects of Chinese culture and being a part of its orbit, either economically and also some ways colonially, militarily. Uh, but it's a long history, so you could go either way with that. Either way, once again, China's been here for five thousand years. They had periods of conquest and periods of peace, periods where they warred with each other、um, in civil wars. But for the most part, tributary system. That's what I want to focus on. This was the main international effort of China for the most part in its history, and it's more relevant to us today because, in some ways, it seems that the Chinese government is trying to well reinstate that tributary system. Uh, the tributary system is really quite simple. You would show up a foreign country or a foreign representative of a country, and you would bring something in front of the emperor, and you would perform something called the kowtow, 
or the kneeling of three times in the prostration position, which really just meant putting your face to the floor. I think it's probably the most submissive, I guess, reading that you could do. Uh, beyond that, the country wanting to trade with China would pay a formal tribute, essentially a membership agreement uh, that would allow you to trade with China in designated areas, usually around outposts um, on its border. Beyond trade, most other countries in this tribute system copied aspects of Chinese culture. Remember, it's kind of like a solar system. China's the middle. So things like Confucianism, which is a religion slash philosophy uh, that was widely practiced in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, has its roots in China, but also Chinese language. I'm going to say Chinese, and that's going to be indicative of Mandarin for the most part. But So Mandarin, uh, which became oftentimes the the written base for these other countries' languages, but also the Chinese architectural style, China's rule of law. You know, China in many ways, uh, for us Westerners, was the Rome of the East. They were that empire for so long, much longer than the Romans were around. I think the best way to characterize China's place is just dominant, and this goes without really question historically. China inhabited this place in the world pretty much until recently. It was the world's largest economy until the 19th century, 1800, uh, when Great Britain eventually would surpass it due to the Industrial Revolution. And it wasn't until the mid-19th century that China really fell from grace in what is referred to often now as the Century of Humiliation. This period is something that is remembered very clearly by modern-day Chinese and has left an imprint on the Chinese people to this day, in part because of government efforts. And we'll touch on this more later, this idea of government efforts, but just know that this time period we're about to discuss is very fresh in the Chinese psyche due to a focus that was put on it by the government. And that's where we find ourselves, and we just skipped over 5,000 years of Chinese history. And once again, I apologize immensely. Obviously, it is important, but I just can't spend the time on it considering the, well, <laughs> the amount of time that would be required to get a really good grasp of Chinese history and present that to you. Um, so if you do want to learn more about Chinese history, there are lots of podcasts you consume. There are a plethora of books. But for the most part, just know Chinese history was long and lasting. Um, and for the most part, they were the center of their own world for a long time. Uh, and there was a lot of lessons learned <laughs> from these previous incidents that we will touch on later in the podcast. There are aspects of history that Chinese leaders uh, pay attention to. So we will give some periods of history, some uh, well, showtime um, on stage. Uh, but for the most part, I have to leave it out of the podcast. Our important era with the Chinese is that of when they really became part of this globalized world when, well, the West came to them and started trading with them. And that was for the focus of this podcast beginning around 1800. So those last 200 years are important because, well, something crazy happens that often happens in history. White guys showed up, whether white guys showing up in 1492 in the Americas or white guys showing up in Africa or white guys showing up in China. Something bad usually happens after those white guys first showed up, and that was the case with China. So China, for the most part in its history, was well, such a goliath, they didn't really have to worry about external forces. You did have like the Mongols marching in. They built the Great Wall in part because of the Mongols. Um, 
But those four to 5,000 years were mostly characterized by internal rather than external threats. China has had warring periods and civil wars for vast periods of its history. And that's usually where China found most of its battles with. It wasn't really with foreigners, but with, well, its own citizens. But these years after 1800 were quite different. So when the West arrived, the numbers hoping to trade, once again, it really wasn't seen as that different. People come to China wanting to get goods because China had superior goods. And yes, these people were white. But they came for the same reasons. They wanted Chinese porcelain. They wanted Chinese tea. They wanted Chinese silk and spices and all those things. So it really wasn't that unusual. So when they showed up, China was like, sure, you can trade with us. That sounds great. But this is kind of China's downfall as well. So they saw everyone as inferior. Remember, they're the Middle Kingdom. So when Great Britain showed up wanting to trade, they did see that Great Britain had these different ships and cannons and guns for that matter. But the Chinese, who had always come from this place of superiority when they thought about themselves compared to foreigners, didn't really mind the differences. They just thought they were from so far away, so they were just different. But they were still similar to the tributary system countries around it and the fact that they were inferior. So for a while, everything went relatively fine. So the first traders actually showed up to China in 1513, and they were Portuguese. And they, for the most part, abided by China's rules, following the ideas of the tributary system. And Great Britain initially did as well when Great Britain started to trade with China en masse um, around 1800. And they were plugged into this system called the Canton system. The Canton system was named because of, well, trade took place in Canton, which is an area around Guangzhou. Uh, this, the system was meant to limit the influence of outsiders would have on China. Keep the foreigners on the periphery. Don't let them, you know, intermingle with the average Chinese person and sully the purity of Chinese civilization. The British really didn't have a problem with the Canton system. They wanted to trade with China uh, and China said, sure, you can trade with us, you just have to do it here. And so the British, for the most part, just went along with it. The problem arose because Great Britain wanted a lot of Chinese goods, in particular that of tea, the fuel of the British Empire. The problem was that the Chinese weren't buying that many British goods, and this led to an issue. This issue is a problem that persists to this day. Countries go on and on, uh, still about trade deficit. America's president is still talking about trade deficits to this day, for example. Um, but the British trade deficit was mainly due to this insurmountable desire for tea. And this was a big problem back then because the British weren't giving up, you know, fiat paper money. So like when the Americans purchase Chinese goods, they give them dollars, which aren't backed by anything. But the British were giving hard currency to the Chinese, a.k.a. they were paying in silver to satisfy their rampant tea addiction. And you really can't print more silver. Um, and so the British had to balance out the trade deficit in order to ensure that they weren't just going to keep pouring money into China. And the British found an elegant solution, and I say that sarcastically. It was simultaneously ingenious and highly unethical. The British responded by giving the Chinese their own addiction. The British were addicted to tea, so they wanted to get the Chinese addicted to that of opium. Opium, which is an opiate, which is causing a host of problems to this day in the United States uh, via heroin and over-the-counter medications like Vicodin, well, the Chinese dealt with a similar issue in the 19th century, opium being a plant that is smoked via a pipe. It's not as potent as heroin, but it still causes a lot of societal issues, which it did in China in the 19th century. So the opium was grown and shipped from India to China, where it was smuggled into the country. And so all of a sudden, the Chinese started thinking, wow, this stuff is really good, and that trade balance 
not only corrected itself, but it reversed. And you shouldn't find this surprising, but the Chinese weren't exactly appreciative of the British while doing this. The idea that the British were bringing in opium, getting their population addicted to it, which caused social issues. But on top of that, the Chinese started to see a reversal of that sliver bullion flow rather than going into the country. It was leaving the country. So the emperor at the time, uh, the president, the dictator of China, banned the trade and more consequently seized 2.66 million pounds of opium uh, from the ports. Though the British were not against any kind of country expressing sovereignty over the regulation of trade, they were openly against the sudden theft of British assets. The seizure of the assets was seen to be so egregious that the British responded with force. The British, with their superior navy, bombarded ports and other assets close to shores or by rivers, and this war would become known as the First Opium War, which is a spoiler, there could have been a second, uh, which would occur between 1839 and 1842. After the Chinese lost in a humiliating defeat to the British, the Chinese would sign the Treaty of Nanking, which would formally begin the century of humiliation. And this is where the Chinese got a rude wake-up call to the fact that maybe China is not the pinnacle of everything in the world. But that really hasn't sunk in yet, and it wouldn't sink in after the First Opium War and their embarrassing defeat. The Canton system, which said that trade would occur in Canton, was now dead to the new rules established by the Treaty of Nanking. The treaty would become the first of many, and it would start a period of time and a system called the Treaty System, uh, which essentially meant that loads of countries would make treaties with China, but they were often one-sided, and the Chinese didn't get much, um, if anything, in return. And after the first treaty, the Chinese were forced to cede Hong Kong to the British. It also allowed the British to trade in more designated areas and obtain the rights to ports. Interestingly, the Chinese, thinking they could elicit goodwill from other countries, gave similar rights to the United States and other Western countries whom were trading with China at this time. This was called the most favored nation policy, something akin to when your parents say they treat both kids equally. So if one country gets a privilege, so does the other country. And unlike my parents, at least, China did a decent enough job of treating most countries equally. This would eventually lead to something called the spheres of influence, which would result in China being partitioned by the likes of Germany, France, Great Britain, Russia, Japan, the United States, and a few others. China was so big that you really couldn't colonize the whole place, but you could carve out your own sphere. And now we find ourselves in the midst of the century of humiliation. So in concurrence with this time period, uh, China is going through some unrest, which was in part due to the interference efforts of the West, but also just because the Qing dynasty, um, whom was ruling at the time, was relatively ineffective. And these problems that were manifested in part from the West were also in part due to internal issues with ruling the country. China was prone to civil wars. So this wasn't exactly um, unheard of, considering while well, ruling 400 million people with outdated technology is sometimes difficult. So this Taiping Rebellion, as it's called, actually resulted in the deaths of 20 to 30 million Chinese. And all it really did was this will make China weaker than it even was prior when it lost that first opium war. So in 1856, which was the time period of the Taiping Rebellion, you also get the second opium war. So the British sought more concessions from the Chinese, and initially the Chinese refused, which incited this conflict. The Second Opium War would result in the burning of the Summer Palace, akin to like a secondary White House. 
not the main one, but the secondary one. And after the Second Opium War, the West got even more concessions. Now, it's worth noting here that this time, the Second Opium War was fought with the French. So it's the British and the French, mostly. And the concessions this time included the rights for foreigners to travel to the internal regions of China, mostly for, quote, missionary purposes. Missionaries, in quotes, because it essentially opened up the country to anyone whom just claimed to be a missionary. Additionally, more ports would be opened, and the opium trade was legalized. Uh, some land was lost to Russia, and finally the Chinese government would have to pay reparations to Britain and France for causing the war, amongst other things. You see how countries come and get involved here, and that was just kind of the case. We just mentioned Russia getting land. You had a bunch of countries just kind of coming and going as they pleased in their interference with China, forming a mesh of alliances, but the common factor was West versus China. And this is just because of the China size. No country could really go in and dominate China without committing a large amount of uh, men and resources. So forming this mesh of alliances whenever necessary proved to be the most efficient way of dominating the Chinese during this time period. So over the next 40 years, roughly from 1860 to 1900, uh, the West would trade with China on terms that largely benefited the West. And although the Chinese were technically sovereign, its ports and other possessions that were signed out uh, by China in this treaty system uh, were for the most part outside of Chinese control. These ports, for all intents and purposes, were 100% independent from China, uh, aka basically colonies. There would eventually be over 80 treaty ports signed over to foreign powers, and China would lose at least five territories, the most famous of which was Hong Kong. These leases, as they were called of these territories, uh, would be handed over in time, um, but the last of which, Hong Kong, wouldn't be handed over from Great Britain until 1997. So this Chinese loss of sovereignty to what they considered inferior peoples uh, was insulting, to say the least, and created a lot of tension. Who'd have thought? On top of this, there was a large amount of missionaries in the country whom were converting the Chinese to Christianity. Now, if you remember from the Canton system, uh, the Chinese had this obsession with keeping well, China pure. They didn't want foreigners influence, influencing Chinese culture, and the Canton system was a way of preserving that. So the fact that you had the West coming in and walking around willy-nilly converting people to Christianity wasn't exactly something that was popular with a large amount of the masses. And just to kick the dead horse, here you had the opium problem, which was turning into an opium epidemic. So by 1900, it's estimated that one-fourth of adult males were said to be addicted to the drug. Now take that statistic with a grain of salt. It was hard to gather information about rural China at this time period. But the one takeaway here is it was extremely destructive. So you're getting poverty uh, due to the trade imbalances between the West and China. You have opium. You have your beautiful Chinese culture being sullied by that of Western missionaries who were bringing Christianity to the country. And the people got sick of it. The full-blown retaliation would occur in 1899, and this rebellion would become known as the Boxer Rebellion. And the Boxer Rebellion was an anti-foreign, anti-colonial, anti-Christianity movement, um, and it was formed to fight against everything Western. So the Boxer Rebellion, led by the Boxer fighters, whom were convinced that they were invulnerable to foreign weapons, I don't know how they got to that conclusion, uh, went around marauding and killing old peoples that they detested. This was mostly Europeans, uh, Chinese Christians, 
um, and then Chinese whom were seen to be too westernized. The Boxer Rebellion would grow in scale and would eventually lead to a fighting force of roughly 100,000 to 300,000 boxers. It became such a strong movement for that part that eventually the Emperor of the Qing Dynasty joined with the boxers in their fight against the West. That's not to say all the regional governors joined in this fight. That Taiping Rebellion left divisions in the country, so you had some parts of the country allying with the West in this fight. The Western nations would eventually create an alliance of eight countries, sending 20,000 troops to stop the rebellion. The nations included Great Britain, Russia, France, Japan, Germany, United States, Austria-Hungary, and the Netherlands. The rebellion was put down rather handily. It turned out the boxers, in fact, were not immune to foreign weapons, um, and the West would initiate their favorite part of the conflict with China, uh, getting to put more treaties on China. Now, this one's actually called a protocol, uh, not a treaty, but it's pretty close. Under the Boxer Protocol, which was called, the Chinese were forced to pay the salaries of the men now stationed in Beijing in order to ensure no further rebellions would occur. Reparations were also to be paid by China to the eight nations involved for the next 39 years. The reparations totaled more than the tax revenue Beijing brought in each year, effectively bankrupting the country. It didn't also help that the West put interest on that debt. So these troops that were stationed in China um, following the rebellion, whom the Chinese had to pay the salaries of, um, well, apparently they didn't think they were getting paid enough. So just to add a little bit of an insult to murder, um, the Western soldiers ended up pillaging, looting, and raping. Uh, Raping being a far too typical byproduct of war, unfortunately. The looting was so bad that one British newspaper called the ordeal the Carnival of Loot. It doesn't really get better from here for the Chinese. The next 50 years of Chinese history was not great. But the Boxer Rebellion did have the benefit of tearing up any idea of further colonization by the Europeans or the West. There was just too many people to manage, which would be extremely costly to get them to, I guess, be domesticated. But on top of that, the fact was that Europe was preparing for a fight back home. There was mass militarization happening on the home continent of Europe, so there was less focus put on China. So a lack of European influence left somewhat of a power vacuum, which was filled by Japan, whom gladly filled this role, and America would act as a co-conspirator to some regard. America's only real concern with China was ensuring that all countries stood on similar footing, maintaining that whole most favored nation principle that China had established back in 1840. America just wanted to trade with China. They had no um, intentions of colonization. They already had gone through their uh, colonization spurt, and they weren't feeling it anymore. Although the West was for the most part done interfering in China, the scars were too much to handle um, on top of the mismanagement by the Qing dynasty. Uh, well, it all fell apart. So the last of the Chinese dynasties, the Qing, would collapse in 1912. The Qing did not go peacefully into the night, though. There was a revolution, um, not a civil war, because the Qing dynasty was removed. Um, and this was called the Xinhai Revolution. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and so China was by no means a centralized power, as we've mentioned earlier. Um, so this new uh government in China was called the Republic of China, and it was not unified by any measure. In fact, in 1917, uh, the Qing dynasty would return because they would reconquer, uh, I guess, the capital from the Republic of China. Uh, But that dynasty would last for a total of 11 days. General unrest became the status quo, and it would stay that way until about 1928 when the country was reunified 
for the most part, uh, by Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, the unification wasn't really characterized as peace and quiet, though, as the nationalists would begin their next civil war against that of the communists. The war would begin in 1827, um, and it wouldn't end till 1950. So let's just look at China. It's 1930, and what a fall from grace this country has had. And I'm not saying here that it was just the fault of the West. The Qing Dynasty did not do a very good job of managing well, the change that was happening in the world, and it paid for that in droves, as you can see here just from what's been happening over the past 100 years or so. You have a constant state of civil war. The country's been carved up into spheres of influence by the West. And unfortunately, 1930, the next few years are not going to get much better. In fact, they're going to get a lot worse. So was the West respectful towards China? No, they weren't really respectful towards any country for the most part. They only saw benefits that could come, and usually that benefits had costs for the home country, and China was no different in that regard. The West took financial resources from China. There's no doubt about that. But what would happen over the next few years was truly terrible. During World War II, the Japanese, um, well, they would really do, do a number on China, to say the least, and we're going to talk about it here shortly. And it's an important part of the story because Although Japan is obviously not contiguous with the United States, they are not one country. But Japan now is a treaty ally of the United States, with 50,000 U.S. troops stationed in the country. And the United States is legally obligated to defend Japan. And this Japanese-Chinese relationship inherently impacts the U.S. in its relationship with China. The wounds that Japan will leave on China are deep, and they are festering to this day. And you know, for a long time, Japan and China actually had a pretty symbiotic relationship. It wasn't until the 20th century that things fell apart. And this is excluding one event where the Mongols, whom had conquered China at this point, tried to invade Japan, but were repelled by a typhoon. But that one event outstanding, they both got along pretty well. Japan fell happily inside of China's tributary system, actually. So China's influence in Japan is seen through... Uh, Japanese culture in a facet of ways. So Japanese text is actually based upon Chinese characters. Chinese architecture is widely adopted uh, prior to industrialization, that is. In Japanese school, children to this day are taught Chinese characters as well. This quiet and happy relationship took a turn, though, when Japan would embrace the West, which was in stark contrast to the Chinese decision to well, consider the West inferior and to ignore them for the most part. So Japan would open up to the world following the arrival of Commodore Matthew Perry of the United States, whom was sent to Japan by the administration of America's greatest president, Millard Fillmore, uh, in the 1850s. Um, his arrival was an attempt to open up Japan to trade after its 200 years of isolation. Commodore Perry used the persuasive tactic of gunboat diplomacy, which, through the cunning and subtle use of firing blank cannons from America's larger and better armed ships, hoped to force the Japanese to capitulate through a show of force. So they fired their blanks and threatened to destroy all assets close to shore and potentially deploy Marines. This tactic relies on fear and intimidation and outright lying. So in this example, Perry threatened Japan, saying that if they did not capitulate, 
100 more ships from America, like the ones in Japan at that time, would come and take over the whole country. Well, it turns out that America didn't even have 100 ships similar to Perry's. This was just a bluff. But in this instance, it did work. Unlike China, Japan recognized that the West was in this case superior. As a Japanese feudal lord would remark, quote, If we take the initiative, we can dominate. If we do not, we will be dominated, end quote, which held to be surprisingly true. And so it was. Japan went from being dominated by Perry and a few warships to an industrialized nation that would dominate rather than being dominated. Japan would go from a member of the tributary system with China to fighting a war with China in just a few years. So in 1894, Japan would invade Korea, which at this time was essentially a province of China. China attempted to repel this newly modernized Japanese military, but failed. The Japanese were easily able to take Korea, both modern-day north and south, that is. But the Japanese troops didn't stop there. They invaded Manchuria, which is an area of northern China just adjacent to North Korea. Um, and in the war, Japan also managed to obtain the Pescadores Islands, I think I'm saying that right, which was a good staging point for a possible invasion of Taiwan. This wasn't necessary, though, as the Chinese sued for peace. The Chinese had a lot of problems right now. Japan would gain the likes of the Koreas, Taiwan, uh, the Ryodong Peninsula, which is an area north of Korea, and Japan took it upon themselves to take the Senkaku Islands. Remember that name, Senkaku. Although it wasn't formally stated in the treaty, this is an important part later in our story because these islands will be a headache over a 100 years from now. Japan went on to dominate East Asia, defeating the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 and gaining even more predominance on the Korean Peninsula and in the areas of Manchuria, and also it got some more islands north of Korea. The next 25 years, from 1905 to 1930, Japan's focus was on economic and territorial expansion, which it did so by taking advantage of the war in Europe. So it sided with the Allies in the Great War, World War I, and it managed to attack and colonize the German colonies in the Pacific. Japan also took the initiative during World War I, with everyone's attention turned towards Europe, by expanding its influence in China. Japan didn't have much of an interest in preserving that most favored nation principle that America really liked. It sought a principle in which Japan was the most and only favored country. Japan would meddle in China's affairs quite consistently until its stirring of the pot became just slightly more blatant. World War II might have officially begun in Europe in 1939, but aggressions against China began in 1931, when the Japanese, I guess, officially uh, seized Manchuria from China, setting up a puppet state that was loyal to the Japanese. The formal beginnings, though, of World War II in Asia would begin in 1937, and originally was called the Sino-Japanese War. The war was catastrophic to say the least, with 10 to 25 million Chinese civilians dead and over 4 million Chinese and Japanese military service members killed. War is hell, but wars happen, and they've been happening since the first human beings inhabited this earth, and it started with sticks and stones, and now we're on to missiles. But something was different about World War II. Obviously, most people are aware of the Nazis' execution of the Jews um, in World War II, the Holocaust. But what is less well advertised is the Japanese atrocities during World War II. This will not be a complete compilation of Japan's acts. There are still arguments to this day regarding the validity of some of the numbers, 
So you can take some of these numbers with a grain of salt. Just know that the actions were, for the most part, atrocious, and it left a bad taste in China's mouth. First on our list of atrocities, Japan used biological and chemical warfare against the Chinese during the war. In all the other fronts of the war, whether it was German versus the Soviets, or Germans versus America, or the Italians versus the British, or whatever, there was no chemical or biological warfare. This is in contrast to the Japanese in the war with China, which included the use of poison gas and the airdropping of fleas, which were infected with bubonic plague. Bubonic plague often being attributed to the cause of the Black Death in Europe during the Middle Ages. Not the most nicest tactic in a war. Uh, so most countries had agreed not to use such methods of warfare because of their inhumaneness. However, Japan was not one of those countries. The next event is probably the most highly publicized, um, and it's the Nanking Massacre. Nanking, which was the capital of China during World War II, was occupied by the Japanese in 1937. In over six weeks after the seizure of the city, the Japanese reportedly killed anywhere between forty to 300,000 Chinese, and there was a significant amount of raping and pillaging. And to this day, this is kind of, I guess, when China thinks of uh, Japan during World War II, this is the event that comes to mind. This is like America, how they perceive Japan during World War II. I guess you could consider Pearl Harbor being that act. This is their act, and it's on a scale that is extremely heightened. If you consider America lost 3,000 people during Pearl Harbor. During the Nanking Massacre, well, virtually between forty and 300,000 civilians would die. Another of one of the more despicable and less well-known atrocities was surrounding a unit uh, called 731, a chemical and biological research center located in present-day China, staffed by the Japanese. It committed research acts that were on par with the Nazi research atrocities in the concentration camps. The large majority of these test subjects were Chinese of all ages, including infants. And the acts of research performed included performing organ or extremity removal while the host was conscious to see the effects. They infected people with diseases. They impregnated female prisoners so as to experiment on the unborn child in the womb. This is just really terrible things. And though it's not a statistical major reason for the death of so many Chinese during the war, it just kind of shows you how the Japanese treated the Chinese population throughout the war. They were lab mice. Another event that's worth mentioning here, but it doesn't really concern the Chinese, but it's going to be relevant later in our story, is this thing known as Comfort Woman. There was an estimated 200,000 women that were mainly uprooted from Korea, although they were also taken from China and other territories that Japan conquered during World War II. But these ladies would be attached to a Japanese unit to provide, quote, comfort. It is exactly what it sounds like. These women were, for the most part, sex slaves, and they would be periodically raped by the units for which they provided comfort. This is a grievance that Korea still holds against Japan, although China is more than happy to point the finger at Japan and say how evil they are, even towards their supposed ally, South Korea. And to this day, it inhibits the ability of South Korea and Japan from working together. Beyond these specific events and acts, this the general torture of POWs, the forced labor camps, the general conduct of the Japanese during the war was above and beyond what a normal occupation or war would look like. And what I think makes this really emblematic of the Japanese would have to be the treatment of Chinese prisoners during the war. So when a war ends, it's common to release the prisoners from the war. There's no reason to hold on to the enemy 
prisoners anymore. The war's over. So after World War II, the British um, released an estimated 400,000 POWs. The United States released 740,000 POWs. At the time of Japan's surrender in 1945, after almost a decade of war, the Japanese released only 56 Chinese prisoners of war. The Japanese-Chinese front of World War II was numerically larger than the Western front between the Allies and Germany during World War II, and there was less than 1% of the POWs. This wasn't because the Chinese weren't necessarily surrendering. It's just because the Japanese would just kill them on the spot. There were no prisoners. There was just executions. Executions weren't just rampant. They were an element of the strategy of the Japanese. There are many other events that occur between Japan and China, and the facts and figures are still contested in some areas, but I just wanted to show the relevant past that occurred during World War II. And it doesn't help that the Chinese government fans this anti-Japanese fire, but on top of that, the Japanese never really apologized similarly to what the Germans did after World War II. The Japanese stood their ground more in regards to the acts they committed. I don't fully understand why this is such a sticking point to this day for either country, considering the survivors of World War II now number, I believe, 5% of the total combatants uh, that actually fought. It's starting to become the distant past, but when you listen to some Chinese people talk that are in their 20s, they recall the Japanese atrocities from the war as if they were there. Regardless of whether I think it's right or wrong to make that the sticking point to ruin relations between two countries, it's relevant. And it's relevant to our story. We don't always get to choose the world we live in. Uh, we just have to simply deal with it. World War II tore China up. And China was already pretty much in tatters when, when the war started. Outside of the countless wars that have happened between all the opium wars and the first and second Sino-Japanese War, you have the internal revolutions, the civil wars that have been happening. Well, China was just in a bad place come 1945. And during the war, it's somewhat of a common misconception, but the Chinese that were fighting that World War II for the most part, it wasn't the communists. It wasn't Mao Zedong. It was Chiang Kai-shek, Generalissimo. It was the nationalists, the Republic of China's government, not the communist. When the Civil War in 1927 began, it was the Republic of China, the Nationalists, under Chiang Kai-shek, who controlled the main aspects of the Chinese government. The Communists were fringe. So when the Japanese invaded, uh, it was agreed upon, essentially, that their Civil War could wait. The war with the Japanese was more uh, important to deal with. But for the most part, the Communists sat idle, although they did take up some forces from the Japanese just because the Japanese were worried about a possible communist uh, offensive, uh, but that never really occurred. The main fighting, the main blood that was spilt, came from the nationalists. And so when the war ended, the nationalists were not exactly in a great state. And the communists were well aware of this. They were biding their strength in some regards. Uh, and Mao Zedong, uh, the founder of Communist China, was aware of this fact. And I think it's best represented by a quote that he had said to ja a Japanese prime minister in 1974. Uh, who said, quote, you don't have to say sorry, you have contributed towards China. Why? Because had Imperial Japan not started the war of invasion, how could we communists become mighty powerful? How could we stage the coup d'etat? How could we defeat Chiang Kai-shek? How are we going to pay back you guys? No, we do not want your war operations, end quote. 
And that's kind of the reality is the communists were fringe. And when the Japanese uh, imperialists invaded, well, it leveled the playing field. So after World War II, it was a more even match. And Chiang Kai-shek ended up having to retreat with his nationalists to Taiwan. And Mao Zedong and the communists got mainland China. The lack of American involvement here is relatively well known. There is no Chinese war like there is a Korean or Vietnam one in America's past. And this is surprising when you think about it because this is a war against communism. America fought two what some would say kind of strange wars in Asia um, over communism. But on top of that, Chiang Kai-shek was a part of the big force. You often hear about these meetings between uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, Stalin, and Churchill. Uh, but Chiang Kai-shek was there as well when they were debating the strategy that, well, the Allies should have against that of Germany and Japan. And the fact that when Chiang Kai-shek was fighting for survival, America didn't intervene. They didn't do anything. This was a country with whom America's leadership was familiar, and it had been a strong ally during the war. Additionally, the lines of the Cold War had already started to kind of reveal themselves. And the fact that the communists were taking over the country didn't make America act. Mao Zedong would actually later remark to Stalin in his disbelief that America had not done more to back the nationalists against that of the communists. He had expected a million American troops to land and prevent the loss of China to the communists. And this is in part because, unlike in Europe after World War II, in which the United States took a very heavy-handed approach um, in regards to the continent with the Marshall Plan, but also stationing troops across the continent, the U.S. really only put troops in Japan following World War II, and it wasn't really focused on reconstruction. Europe was still at the center of the world in some regards. As Eisenhower would later remark, though, quote, the loss of China was the greatest diplomatic defeat in this nation's history, end quote. I mean, the United States fought two wars to stop the spread of communism in small satellite countries such as Korea and Vietnam, and yet the United States did nothing to prevent the spread of communism in one of its allies in the most populated country on the planet. China would be a wake-up call to the United States, though. It would be the rallying call for why America would be involved in further civil wars regarding communism versus, well, what other form of government was battling communism. This is one of those events in history, though, where you wonder how it could have been different if America had gotten involved and helped Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. And China would have ended up being maybe similar to that of Korea or Japan after World War II. What would China look like right now? What would the world look like? Would this podcast be even happening? Would the interest of America and China had dovetailed and China would be this flourishing democracy? We'll never know. But it didn't happen. And Mao and the communists came to power in China. Taiwan would house Chiang Kai-shek and his ousted nationalist government. Um, and both governments would claim to be the leader of China which would become the foundation of something called the One China Policy. And this is the idea that even if China is ruled by two different governments, Taiwan and mainland China, it's still one China, and it would be ruled one day by one government. This idea was that they were just, you know, separated for a brief lapse of time. But fundamentally, they were always going to be one country. So in the initial days of the communist regime, now that China had or communist China had become the ruler of mainland China, well, the communists got pretty active. The first thing they did was expand their territory, which is not really well known. But so there was an area called Xinjiang, um, which through some heavy-handed negotiations uh, between the Chinese and Soviets and some threats, managed to make Xinjiang province uh, 
give up their allegiance to the KMT party, which was the ruling party in Taiwan, the nationalists with Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and to join the Communist Party and become part of Communist China. Very shortly after, China would fight a very brief war with Tibet beginning in October 1950, which would lead to the annexation of Tibet. You might recall seeing bumper stickers, seeing Free Tibet, um, and celebrities advocating for Tibetan independence. This movement got a lot of attention in the 1990s. Um, um, you don't really hear about it as much anymore, uh, but you still hear about the Dalai Lama, uh, who will be make, who makes state visits and it raises a big fuss out of China. And that's because the Dalai Lama is seen as the leader of the Free Tibetan Movement, which is why China despises him so much visiting any other country. Because if the Dalai Lama visits your country, it seems that you're endorsing Tibet uh, being independent of communist China. Uh, so Tibet to this day is actually still highly policed uh, by the Chinese government due to fears of any independence movements. Gotta watch out for those monks. There can be up to stuff. Between those two provinces, Tibet and Xinjiang, it actually equates to about 30% of China's current landmass. So they were pretty active in those first years after World War II. And once again, not really getting any challenges from the West, particularly America at this point. One of China's biggest and last interventions, though, for a while would be in October of 1950. So in that month of that year, uh, North Korea actually invaded South Korea. Uh, and the United Nations, consisting mostly of American forces, helped drive back the North Korean advance to the Yalu River, and it would be used as a justification for the Chinese to get involved in the war. This unrational belief was that China was afraid that America was going to use the pretense of the Korean War to invade China, which if you consider that America didn't get involved in Taiwanese conflict uh, when Chiang Kai-shek was removed, or the Tibetan one, or the Xinjiang one, this whole idea that America was as all of a sudden going to willy-nilly invade China just because it was in the neighborhood, eh, it didn't really carry a lot of weight. But that didn't really matter. One of the benefits of living in a communist authoritarian state is you can kind of just say what you want. And so that's what was sold to the public, and that's what was sold to larger factions of the government, was this idea that America was going to invade. So the Chinese, with an overwhelmingly large force, would eventually intervene in the war on behalf of North Korea against that of the Americans and the NATO forces and the UN forces, and would push America back to 38th parallel, the starting point of the war, and it is still to this day their current border between South and North Korea. It would also elicit a massive amount of ill will with America, as the main casualties from the Korean War for America would happen during this offensive and at the hand of the Chinese. So an interesting little tidbit here, but so Kim Il-sung, who is the grandfather to present-day North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, originally wanted the Soviet and Chinese permission before invading South Korea in hopes of consolidating the country into one Korea. Stalin, the Soviet leader at the time, said the Soviets would back the Chinese decision, but they really didn't have a preference. Uh, so this whether to give a green light to the North Korean invasion would come down to China, in more particular Mao Zedong. So Mao wanted to appear strong for his new Soviet ally, and plus China desperately wanted Soviet technology and expertise following World War II. They knew the position they were coming from, and they knew that the Soviets had, well, a leg up in that area. So the idea was is that China didn't want to be seen as weak, it wanted to be seen as a strong and dependable ally, and that would be advantageous to the Soviets to, well, assist the Chinese because they would want them to be as technically well-equipped as they are in case of a fight against America or whomever. So that war occurred, 
And something surprising happened to everyone, which was the fact that the United States got involved. No one really expected that at this time period. And this is in part because it, at this point in time, the Cold War seemed like it was developing. And so this chain of dominoes that was occurring with countries falling to communism in Eastern Europe and in Asia wasn't going to be tolerated anymore. This was the beginning of the Cold War and the American strategy of strategic containment, which was based off this idea of domino theory, which stated that if one country fell to communism, its neighbors were likely to fall to communism, and eventually the whole world would fall to communism because dominoes fall like that. You got the makings of the Cold War right now, and because of this involvement by the Chinese in the Korean War, the U.S. and China would become enemies and China would be locked firmly in the Soviet orbit, and you really had the line drawn that said communism was going to be the bad guys. This is one of those events from history that's kind of like a big, you know, what if. So if Mao had not decided to uh, get involved in the Korean War, South Korea uh, seems like it would have consolidated the Korean Peninsula underneath its power, and you could probably expect that South Korea would be something similar to it is today. But on top of that, because America um, originally was okay with this idea that Taiwan would be conquered by the mainland Chinese, because America did see that initially as just an internal conflict, and it wasn't something that America should get involved with. So the Chinese, if they would have just used their forces to invade Taiwan and, consult, um, and annex it into communist China, we would have well two things removed from this earth that are big problems. One being North Korea and Kim Jong-un, who is... Not exactly creating any uh, easy issues for America right now, um, or for anyone, that matter. Uh, so that wouldn't be on the map. But on secondly, this whole like uh, one-China policy with Taiwan being kind of backed by the United States, which is in stark opposition to the Chinese, and there's still a great desire to annex the country of Taiwan, and it could lead to war. Like, we could remove two hotspots from the glo current global like problem radar. Uh, but unfortunately, Mao Zedong invaded Korea under a ludicrous belief system that America was going to attack China. But anyway, things are what they are. And following the war, well, China would become pretty internally focused um, until about the 1970s. China was going to be shut out from the world, um, as most countries recognize Taiwan now as the real China, not communist China. And in fact, Taiwan would be... Uh, the sitting, the permanent members of the UN Security Council, Russia, America, um, Great Britain, France, and, well, Taiwan would be acting on behalf of all of China. This time period between the Korean War and Nixon's state visit to China in 1972 could be best characterized as internal mayhem under the leadership of Mao Zedong, who is always seen to be this great leader. Well, other than botching the whole Korean Peninsula thing in order to fight that fight and lose Taiwan. He did a lot of other really terrible things that were terrible for his countrymen. So two events occurred in China which would have a strong influence on its leaders today. The Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. The Great Leap Forward was an initiative by Mao Zedong and the Communist Party, and it was an attempt to modernize the country. So at this point in time, China was pretty much, well, for the most part, an agrarian society. And, well, the powerful countries of the day, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, the United States, well, they were industrialized. So this was the main effort of the Chinese under the Great Leap Forward. The main aspect of the Great Leap Forward included the prohibition of private farming instead calling for collectives, which were originally thought would increase productivity, but surprise, surprise, the opposite occurred. But Mao also recognized that steel output was the critical aspect of industrialization, at least in his mind. 
Uh, so production was drastically increased and at all cost, and a lot of costs there were. The ways you can get more steel production is through moving farmers from their farms to cities so they can work in factories. But another unusual way to increase steel production is via backyard furnaces. People would have these backyard smelters that they would produce, well, steel at. Every neighborhood um, in most of agrarian China would have their own smelter, which is in itself bizarre. Another fun aspect of the leap included the four pest campaign, which called for the removal of rats, flies, mosquitoes, and sparrows from the whole country. Now, all of these events, um, and there's other things that were a product of the Great Leap Forward, but these are the main ones that I'm just going to talk about, resulted in the deaths of 55 million people. Uh, according to Frank Decoder, a Dutch historian, he estimates that at least 2.5 million people were beaten or tortured to death. Uh, one to three million committed suicide. The remaining deaths were largely attributed to something called the Great Famine. It turns out when you prohibit people from private farming, move other farmers to cities to be steel workers, so they're not maining their own farms, and then ask other farmers to smelt iron ore in their backyards. But also on top of that, you remove sparrows, and sparrows eat crop-eating insects. Well, all this accumulation at the same time, you just might get a food shortage. And the Great Famine was a absolute disaster, just from a social perspective. 50 million people is a lot. But on top of that, you have to understand, the communists took over China because, well, they were supposed to be, well, the protectors of the Chinese people. But more people died in the Great Famine than people died during, well, the Chinese, or the Japanese occupation of China during World War II or during any of the wars that occurred um, at the hands of the West. Uh, during the sphere of influence period and the treaty system period in the century of humiliation. So this really wasn't, well, good for the Communist Party, and it created a lot of resentment towards the, the Communists, but mainly towards that of Mao, whom was the leader during this whole ordeal. Mao Zedong, in an effort to reconsolidate his power, uh, it launched an initiative called the Cultural Revolution, which is essentially a purge of the elite and all the factions that he thought were, well, holding back China, but more importantly, were just anti-Mao and to some degrees anti-communism as well. As such, millions of people were persecuted in violent struggles across the country that was mostly focused at the upper echelons of society. Professors, Communist Party members, teachers, professionals. And these people suffered a wide range of abuses, including public humiliations, arbitrary imprisonment, torture, hard labor. Um, sustained harassment, seizure of property, and sometimes execution. Even the current leaders of the Communist Party, uh, so uh, Xi Jinping, whom is the present leader, was impacted by the event. His father was actually accused of being one of the said perpetrators and was taken into custody while his sister was killed, and Xi Jinping was sent to the countryside to perform hard labor. This was a time period where China essentially attempted to erase its uh, dynastic past, uh, that long past that China has and is proud of, uh, Mao Zedong essentially tried to eradicate it. He just wanted the party to be, the country to be pure, and the country would be pure when the country was just focused on communism. That was it. No religion, no cultural past, nothing like that, just communism, and a cult of personality um, towards Mao Zedong himself. These years, from 1950 to 1970, were 
pretty crummy for China. Um, later on, people will lament the fact that China lost 30 years at an important time period because you have countries like South Korea and Japan that were ravaged from war. South Korea was actually the poorest country in Asia at the end of the Second World War, and they were going through these periods of just intense modernization, and they were becoming richer while China kind of stagnated. But the one thing China did have was a strong friend, and that strong friend was the Soviet Union, who was its, for the most part, only ally. Remember, it's not even seating at its uh, position at the United Nations. The Chinese being friends with the Soviet Union was mostly akin to, well, a clique. Uh, the communists like hanging out with communists, and the capitalists like hanging out with capitalists. But the relationship started to fall apart in the 1960s. It was called the Sino-Soviet split, and it began after Stalin's death in 1956 when Nikita Khrushchev, uh, who would take over after Stalin, favored a peaceful coexistence with the West, but also something called de-Stalinization. So de-Stalinization got rid of all these institutions that helped Stalin consolidate so much power, uh, which allowed him to also simultaneously kill millions of his countrymen in a fashion that's not too unsimilar to what Mao Zedong did underneath the Cultural Revolution, um, and then also the Great Famine. China didn't believe that this new soft Soviet Union, um, this de-Stalinized one, was communist enough to lead the communist world. Mao had structured his rule in China partially based off of Stalin's rule, one-man rule, and Stalin would have been proud of Mao's efforts to, well, create a society where Mao was essentially the government. So following a dearth of small grievances here and there, everything would eventually, well, fall apart and going from friends to enemies would be, well, a pretty quick transition. So the relationship would deteriorate so much, in fact, that an undeclared military conflict would erupt on the border between the Soviet Union and China in 1969. In fact, uh, the Soviet diplomats in the United States, uh, well, gave a forewarning to Washington that Moscow, how they planned to wipe out the Chinese threat and get rid of this modern adventurer. Uh, with nuclear strikes and asking the United States to remain neutral in the case of that said nuclear war. The U.S. did say that it would not remain neutral and that a nuclear strike would trigger an American reaction if such an attack would occur. So you might be familiar with this, but no nuclear war did occur between China and Russia. But nonetheless, the friendship, for that matter, the relationship was over. There was no more communication for the two for the most part. Until this remark by the Soviets about the potential bombing, America was largely unaware of the fact that China and the Soviet Union had such a falling out. And America, being, well, pragmatic, saw an opportunity to resume diplomatic relations and take China potentially into the U.S. orbit against that of the Soviets. The What began at first as this small dialogue between the two countries would escalate finally into a visit by President Nixon to China in 1972 which led to the warming of relations between the two countries, and just China in the West for that matter. The trip allowed the United States and China to temporarily set aside some important questions, such as the Taiwan question, the fact that China's communist. Um, but nonetheless, Mao was relatively pragmatic and willing to work with the United States. After the whole, well, warming of the relationship between the two countries, there was a common joke going around that the United States had more communist friends than the Soviets had. And this would be the dawn of a new era. And it was based upon this idea that the Soviet Union was the enemy, and America and China should work together against that common enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So what happens next is, uh, well, it brings to mind a word that we used in the first podcast when we were talking about America and Great Britain. And that word is reproachment. 
this idea of resuming or establishing um, a harmonious relationship. So America and Great Britain went through one of those in the at the, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. But this was another great rapprochement, and it began over some ping pong. Uh, what originally began as an open exchange over ping pong players between the United States and China in friendly competitions of the sport would one day lead to a state visit from President Richard Nixon in 1972. So following Nixon's visit to China, America's strategy towards China was characterized as, quote, constructive engagement, end quote. The Americans' goal of rapprochement towards China wasn't all that different than Great Britain's towards America. There was that real threat of the Soviet Union, a common enemy. But also, America had this belief that in helping prop up China, uh, it would be kind of similar to the American and British rapprochement in the idea that by helping China, the two countries could grow more alike, their interests would dovetail, and they would be these two great democratic capitalistic powers one day. Long time from now, we just got done with the Cultural Revolution, but that was what the Americans had in mind. Unlike America at the beginning of the 20th century, though, China was impoverished. It was a third world nation, and America was established when Great Britain uh, sought to befriend America in the 1890s. In this case, America was going to groom China from adolescence as a third world communist country whom just lost 50 million people to a famine, um, and it would turn into a, well, theoretically, a democratic capitalistic powerhouse. If America could turn Japan and Germany into these strong democratic countries that were capitalistic in almost every facet, why couldn't that occur with China? America didn't fight some great war with China. I mean, the Korean War was one thing, but America and Japan and Germany were, well, the main opponents of each other, uh, obviously with the exception of the Soviet Union, in World War II. And now they were underneath the American security umbrella and they were strong allies. This period, 1972 to 1989, China and America would become friends, although not always publicly. Because China was communist, it made the idea that, well, America stood against communism and the spread of communism. So how could America be friends with China if all communist countries were bad? So the relationship is a lot more under the table than America's relationships with other countries. And the Chinese were okay with this as well because... Well, they also had this idea that communism was the answer in all other methods of government, in particular that of democracy and capitalism, were flawed and in some ways evil. But once again, these countries were practical for the most part. One thing that America would do with China was to ensure that it was protected from the Soviet Union. Just in the 1960s, they were talking about starting a nuclear war with China in hopes of eliminating that adventure from the map of the world. China wanted a security guarantee, and as Henry Kissinger, Nixon's Secretary of State, would say, quote, enough of a relationship with China so that it is plausible that an attack on China involves a substantial American interest, end quote. Essentially, what China wanted was a tripwire, somewhat akin to what the NATO has uh, in Article 5, which says that an attack on one is an attack on all. So America and China would become de facto allies, not with the treaties similar to that of NATO, or the formal alliances, but that's how they would present it. Especially if the Soviet Union ever, well, threw out the idea of maybe starting a preemptive war with China. America would help quell that, and they kind of did so in the 1960s when they said an attack on China would be essentially an attack on America. This relationship was expressed through Americans giving the Chinese uh, information regarding uh, the Soviet's position, uh, that China and the Soviet Union have a uh, shared border, uh, so, and the Americans were providing high-resolution satellite images and other intelligence. The Americans would provide hardware and technology, 
to help level the playing field in the case of a possible Chinese-Soviet fight. The relationship underneath uh, Mao Zedong, who was still in charge at this point, wouldn't progress really much further, though. The Chinese were wary of America's newfound interest in China. The Chinese thought that America was trying to maybe play the Soviets and Chinese off of each other. You know, get your two enemies to fight so they can weaken each other. The rapprochement would really go into high gear when Deng Xiaoping would take over as leader of the Communist Party from 1978 to 1989. Deng was a moderate, a reformer. Uh, He saw the failures of Mao's China. In fact, he started kind of like this, they had the de-Stalinification of the Soviet Union. Something similar happened underneath Deng, uh, which got rid of this idea of, well, a leader being a cult of personality that was, well, not necessarily infallible, but untouchable. And for the most part, the West liked him. He, they, America and the West saw him as a person that could maybe change China's tune. He also believed that America was the future, and he set his sights on strengthening the relationship uh, between America and China for China's gain. Before economics was the driving factor, though, a lot of the efforts between America and China to become friendly with each other were political. So, for example... Um, America in 1978 kind of got to prove its goodwill to the Chinese. As I'm sure you're aware, America fought a war in Vietnam, and after the American withdrawal in the mid-1970s, Vietnam consolidated under the authority of North Vietnam, making it just, well, Vietnam now. Uh, But the country was 100% communist, and it was closely aligned with the Soviets. The Soviets and the Vietnamese signed a mutual defense agreement treaty in 1978. And the treaty, for all intents and purposes, seemed to target, well, America, but also China. So when Vietnam invaded Cambodia in 1975 to set up a pro-Vietnamese government, well, that was one thing. But that defense agreement with the Soviet Union just made it appear that China was going to be encircled by these pro-Soviet countries. On January 1st, 1979, Deng Xiaoping, who was visiting the United States for the first time, told the American president, Jimmy Carter, uh, that, quote, the little child is getting naughty. It's time he gets spanked, end quote. The little child in this situation is Vietnam, and America would provide, well, key things like intelligence reports to the Chinese in order to aid in their fight against Vietnam, but also because of this tripwire that America and China had when China invaded Vietnam, it wasn't, the Soviets didn't get involved. They didn't go invade China because of that mutual defense agreement. It's because America had the slight backing of China that, well, the Soviets were somewhat okay with this, well, it wasn't a full-scale invasion. They weren't trying to colonize the country, but it was seen as a limited warfare. And because of that, the war stayed relatively small. But we saw the two sides here, America and China, and then you had the Soviets and Vietnam. And that's how everything would kind of play out for the next, you know, 12 years or so. So what I just mentioned a second ago about Deng Xiaoping visiting the United States, uh, which he would do in 1979, But this proved to be an extremely important trip. Other than the optics of the leader of the Chinese Communist Party coming to America, but the Chinese would also get a lot out of this because, well, America was reproaching China at this time. And there was this huge one-way transfer of scientific ideas and just other blessings that America gave to China from this trip. This would include allowing Chinese students to study at American universities. And These Chinese students would eventually number 19,000 in just, you know, five years. And these were not just, you know, regular 18-year-olds. These people were going to be working for the Chinese government in a multitude of different ways, from working for their banking sectors to working in their defense department. These people would become the leaders of China and would help 
while play catch-up with America, essentially. The Chinese would send delegations to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, which was a tantamount transfer of scientific knowledge to the Chinese. And this was the beginning of that landslide effort by America to modernize China and to bring China into the U.S. orbit. Beyond this, China was also granted the most favored nation status as a U.S. trading partner in 1979 by President Jimmy Carter. And this allowed the Chinese to trade with the United States with limited to no tariffs. And it would be treated as a trading partner on par with that of, say, Canada. This would be the beginning of China's private development as well, as American businesses would begin to consider China as a place of production and sales. And this enabled the dreaded outsourcing that we hear about today. And the rapprochement would continue underneath the next U.S. president. Under Ronald Reagan, the United States would sell major weapons to the Chinese uh, for more than a billion dollars in total value in the 1980s. And the interesting thing about these purchases is that America was selling these items to the Chinese underneath this pretense of a Soviet-Chinese fight. But only 17% of the items were actual physical equipment. So the other 83% for the most part was technology that was not going to be used for the battles of today, but for tomorrow. Uh, the Chinese were very much of this attitude that it is better to buy one hen than to buy eggs every day. This is kind of how the Chinese will look at things. They're not looking at just the short term of the next year or two. They're looking long term. They have a very long history and it's more important for them to be well prepared for the future. Uh, in the 1980s, the Chinese weren't preparing for a war with the Soviet Union, really, although at least not a war that would happen in the 1980s. It saw beyond that, and it tried to prepare for this uncertain future. It didn't want to be left at a technological disadvantage ever again, and it was doing its best to play catch-up. And the best way to do that is to be on the forefront of, well, technological development. But America's technological, like, superiority was coming from two different facets. It came from one, yes, the government, but the second one was going to come from the private sector. So when the Chinese were looking at the differences between, I guess, the Soviet Union and the United States, it was apparent that America was a richer, more well-rounded society. And the communists or the Soviets did have their own advantages. For the most part, the Chinese were looking to emulate America, which meant emulating aspects of capitalism. And the Chinese started to allow in more capitalistic ideas in 1979. And it started with the open door policy, uh, which allowed countries or businesses from other countries to well, start to do uh, business in China. These, they set up these things called special economic zones, um, which allowed for foreign direct investment uh, to build factories or sell goods in the country. The Chinese economic policy then shifted to encouraging and supporting foreign trade and investment with the idea that the companies would come, they would invest money. The Chinese would learn how to produce the goods that the American or European or Japanese firms are producing. And there would be kind of like a rub off of knowledge. This would be the beginning stages of China's development into becoming this economic alliance that it is today. In the 1980s, because of these reforms, China's economic growth was at 10% a year uh, for most of the 1980s, which is just an insanely high number. And this was a strange road that China was taking. It was reforming itself, but with little idea of where it was really going. Deng Xiaoping perhaps best summarized this process by likening the Chinese strategy to that of crossing the river by feeling for stones. China is still a communist country in the 1980s. The country was reforming, though, and it was allowing uh, private farming and no longer collectives. Now you have foreign capitalist companies showing up looking to sell Western goods and employ Chinese people. It was this weird balance, and no one really knew where this road was going to take China. 
But nonetheless, the United States just saw that if they continue getting richer and richer and richer, then one day they'll probably will be a capitalist country because, well, all the rich countries are for the most part capitalist, democratic. And that's where we kind of find ourselves approaching the end of our reproachment. But it ends kind of with, I guess, uh, a bang. And so in like 1986, the Reagan administration actually assisted the Chinese in developing eight national research centers focused on genetic engineering, robotics, artificial intelligence, automation, biotechnology, lasers, supercomputers, space technology, and space flight. The great advantage that America had over the Chinese, that of technology, which came from either its private companies or within uh, elements of the United States government, were all handed over rather readily to China, all under this pretense that one day the Chinese would be more like us and that they would remain somewhat friends as they are right now in the 1980s. So I want you just to kind of keep this whole reproachment thing in mind for the third episode, because this is important. You know, one of the ideas when I came into this podcast was this idea that America needed to reproach China. I didn't really know that America had already reproached China. Most people are aware of Nixon's visit to China in 1972, but we really don't know. We didn't know what that really entailed long term. But for 17 years, America really bequeathed to China just a lot of advantages that wouldn't come normally. And yes, it was motivated partially by a common enemy, but nonetheless, there was a rapprochement. There was goodwill between the two countries, and it did come to an end, which we're going to talk about here shortly. But I just want you to remember this for the third episode, because we're going to talk about what sacrifices are necessary a country needs to make. And in some regards, America's already made some sacrifices, but this is one of the predicaments when you're dealing with an autocratic state. If you were to ask the Chinese people today about what their views of America are, they're not going to recall this time period, the 17 years where America tried to lift China out of the doldrums. They, The Chinese people have been given, to some extent, a very nationalistic diet of information, and that nationalistic diet doesn't include portraying America as a friend. Anyway, that's just something that I just want you to just keep in your mind because it's going to be important later on. Everything kind of comes to a head when, well, you can just kind of consider this question. So when you think of China, what do you think of? Sure, communism comes to mind, but so does this like economic powerhouse that, you know, the West has grown to fear um, to some extent. When you have household names such as Huawei and Tencent, which are for, by and large byproducts of capitalism. And this is where you kind of find this inherent contradiction between capitalism and communism. Which kind of seems natural to us now, but that transition with capitalism, or I guess someone once called it capitalism with Leninist attributes, and that wasn't necessarily normal um, in the 1980s. It was still kind of unique, and not everyone thought that those two could live together symbiotically. And the real testing point for this system would come in 1989 at Tiananmen Square, which I'm sure you're familiar with. In 1989, uh, what happened there was a culmination of a lot of different things. So in the 1980s, China attempted to reform itself to become more modernized. You had private farming, uh, no longer the communal farming. Um, but most of these reforms were happening at the agricultural level, just because for the most part, in 1980s China, most people lived in rural areas. Their main means of, well, and income and their livelihood came from agriculture and farming. So most of the gains that were happening in the society that was growing at 10% a year was happening um, in these rural areas and with these farmers. And the cities were largely left out of this reform effort. 
And the result of this was that you ended up having um, inflation of like 20%. And because in the rural areas, incomes were growing because of those reforms, but that wasn't necessarily the case in the cities. And to kind of add a little bit of insult to murder here, for the city jobs, usually this would rely on industry. Well, industry was coming from the state-controlled companies. And those state-controlled companies were slowly becoming privatized in some regards, but there wasn't a merit system base uh, for like hiring or uh, anything really for that matter, as far as like how they would elicit, you know, bids from contractors or anything like that. It was a, you know, who you know kind of game. So corruption was endemic. So you had mostly this is where the Tiananmen Square protests erupt from was students who couldn't really afford much because of the inflation was just taking away all their savings. But on top of that, they couldn't get a job based upon like their intelligence or anything like that. It was purely based upon coming from who they know. So those two things really in culmination fermented what would happen in June of 1989. So originally, actually, the Communist Party wasn't against the student protests. So the Communist Party itself was founded by student protests. So they wasn't like we like to think in the West that communism doesn't allow um you know, protests or anything like that. And to some degree, that's true, but it's not 100% true all the time. And that was the case with Tenement. So the actual um, protests were a month long. And a lot of times what these protesters were calling for wasn't exactly unified. So like you had essentially three main fronts for the protest. You had students, intellectuals, whom I guess you could call professor types, and then you had workers. And they were all kind of calling for different things. But the students, for the most part, uh, were the figureheads for the protest, just because they were this numerically the largest, and also, most of the time, the most outspoken as well. And what's not as well known as actually, like, originally the Communist Party was hearing out these protesters. There were dialogues happening between these groups about what reforms they wanted. And for the most part, what the uh, the protesters were calling for was a more democratic society. That was a prevailing theme. Although, this was on on a spectrum because there was over a million people in Tiananmen Square at one point and it wasn't exactly a very centralized campaign you had different leaders there were coup attempts all the time in the protest it was a hard force to well to talk to and to reason with considering well you couldn't necessarily just talk to one person or a group of people and they would uh, be able to to I guess convince the rest of the masses that they should go along with this agreement and also on top of this, one of the paradoxical elements of the protesters was the fact that they weren't democratically elected. Uh, and that kind of created an interesting problem for them because they were arguing for democracy, but even their own leaders weren't democratically elected. Sometimes I feel like the Tiananmen Square protests happened a few years too soon. Because if they were to have happened, say, A, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, or B, after the society kind of grew a little bit richer and got a little bit more exposed to the West. I think that, A, the majority of the people in China would have been more on board with it. But also, if the communists were literally the last communist party standing for the most part on the planet, I think they would have been more keen on perhaps changing their tune as well. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. And what happened was Tiananmen Square. So after these 40 days of back and forth, it ended up erupting into a bloody finale on June 4th. Now, the numbers of those who died um, vary. You have reports between 300 and 10,000 civilians dying when eventually the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, would march into Tiananmen Square and ended up 
killing, well, for the most part, unarmed protesters. There was incidents where the protesters fought back, Molotov cocktails and rocks, but for the most part, it was a slaughter. After the government cleared up Tiananmen Square, first of all, I guess it's worth saying here, that the West was outraged. So for the most part, a lot of Western news organizations were actually in uh, Beijing at this time period because uh, Gorbachev was coming to meet with Deng Xiaoping uh, to discuss, I guess, for, formalizing uh, relations. They were going through their own reproachment at this time period. So these protesters uh, were seen by the West and they ended up staying in capturing the Tiananmen Square revolution. And there were real talks that, you know, that the communist government was going to capitulate and give in to these people's desires. But instead, they just bore witness to, well, a terrible atrocity of the murder, mass murder of civilians by the military. The Chinese government afterwards had one big problem really to address. Obviously, they silenced critics and people that spoke out about the protest. They gave their own narrative about what happened. And let's just say uh, that it turns out the protesters were counter-revolutionaries and they were being paid by the West. Um, and it wasn't hard to necessarily get there because even at the protest, actually, people were holding up the Declaration of Independence. And they built a three-story statue, statue of the goddess of democracy. Uh, so there was some Western elements in that. But that was mostly just because... Well, democracy it has its roots in the West for the most part. But either way, that was the narrative the Chinese were going to take. And because of that, they ended up sensing most of the people that were involved in these um, protests to jail. But also the people that were in the government that were arguing on behalf of the protesters, they got kicked out of the party and often were thrown into jail as well. A lot of intellectuals went into exile. 12% of the newspapers of China got shut down. 13% of social science periodicals. 70%, 76% uh, China's publishing companies were actually put out of business because of this. There was a huge crackdown on free speech. Deng Xiaoping said that they were crossing the river by feeling for stones. Well, they felt the stone they didn't like, and they uprooted that. The West did retaliate in some degree. Um, and part of that came from um, restrictions on trade and things like that. Uh, and Chinese growth actually did slow down to 4% over the next few years. But for the most part, I guess it could be best summed up by President Bush Sr., who was president at the time, who would write in his diary, quote, don't disrupt the relationship. What's happened here has been handled handled badly and is deplorable, but take a look at the long haul. And that was kind of the perspective that the West was going to take on this. They weren't going to let this demonize the relationship between the two countries. What they wanted was for this to be a growing pain. This is where China was obviously going. It just wasn't there yet. So that was mostly the mindset of the West was, we will let them slide this time in hopes that at some point in time, this country of 1 billion people will further democratize as it had shown itself to be at Tiananmen Square and the reforms of the 1980s. So outside of the Communist Party really clamping down on the media, especially the journals, um, the newspapers, publishing houses, and consolidating their power there to ensure that the Communist Party's rhetoric was echoed um, in those establishments of the press, they took a two different prong decision uh, going long term. Uh, so one of the things that Deng Xiaoping would really take away was probably best surmised in a quote that he would have for the 1990s, which was, quote, development is the only iron law. And that idea is essentially that when people are doing well economically, they're not going to protest or call for your government to come down. Societies that are rich and growing don't necessarily have revolutions. And that was the thoughts of Deng Xiaoping, was if we can just ensure constant development, which they saw in the 1980s, 
the only problem with the 1980s development was was that it was centralized in the rural areas rather than the cities. But they would correct that mistake. The reforms in the 1990s were largely going to be focused on the cities, and corruption became a huge issue that really wouldn't be dealt with for 20 years, but it would be dealt with as the country kept reforming and growing. The other thing is that China had found itself kind of with a hole in its heart when it came to its ideology. Communism was the the stone it was the it was the main pillar of a lot of the fabric of the communist party obviously they're communists but when they were reforming in the 1980s they couldn't say they were 100% communists anymore when you have foreign companies in the country doing business all of a sudden people are trying to make a profit and they're starting companies well that's relatively capitalistic so instead of having communism fill that hole in their hearts where it came to ideology they filled it with resentment. And so you had this renationalization of the country, and it was all based upon China's history. So in the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong really focused on taking history out of China. And this would be reinstating that history. And it was to reinstate that history to portray as everyone against China, China alone. Whether it was during the century of humiliation at the hands of Western powers during the sphere of influence, or during the Sino-Japanese War, this became one of the one of the stones that the Chinese would base their society on is that they have been wronged so much and that they could still be further wronged if they don't stand up to it. This new rewriting of history would be mostly demonizing that of the Japanese, but on top of that, America um, and with America, the rest of the Western colonial powers that had carved spheres of influence in China. America was the bad guy these days in the 1990s. It was the hegemon. So America got recast in a lot of ways as the villain. So outside of the fact that America really wasn't involved in the second um, opium war in which the British and French burned down the summer palace, it was portrayed as being an important element of it. But more interestingly might have been uh, America's depiction in World War II. The Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931 and the invasion of China proper in 1937 were actually all part of a U.S. strategy to pit the two Asian nations against each other in an endless war that would prevent either from rising to threaten American hegemony in the Western Pacific. Which is crazy. America and China fought a war together. But this is what this re-education campaign entailed. And say what you will about what Americans' actions were in World War II, that was not our strategy by any measure, but this is what they were feeding to the masses. This new education depicted America not as an ally, but as an enemy to China during World War II. You know, America was an aggressor, and Japan and China were just pawns in a game that they were just not aware of, I guess. And other than the fact that the Americans were largely responsible for the defeat of the Japanese during the war, the communists are actually given the main spotlight, even though the majority of the fighting in China was carried out by Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Party, whom will later uh, move to Taiwan. But on top of that, outside of the fact that they said America was an aggressor, America was supporting the Chinese via Lend-Lease supplies. But also, the United States had 250,000 soldiers um, involved in the China-Burma-India theater, whom were fighting alongside the Chinese. This is left out of Chinese textbooks now. But honestly, compared to the Americans, the Japanese really got right raked over the coals. And to be fair, they were somewhat deserving of it. The Japanese would be held much more accountable for their crimes during World War II. Under this new patriotic education, they would become the main villain against that of China. 
and they're still the main villain to this day in some regards. Which is somewhat ironic considering, well, the change of tone that the Chinese have taken towards the Japanese. Because if you recall earlier, we talked about how Mao Zedong actually said, we should be thanking the imperialist Japanese because if it wasn't for your actions in mainland China, the communists wouldn't have come to power. Or as Mao Zedong would say in 1954, just a few years after the war, quote, you cannot be asked to apologize every day, can you? It's not good for a nation to feel constantly guilty, and we understand this point, end quote. That was just going to get thrown out the window. And this is all because China's trying to create this nationalism. And that nationalism was going to originate against the enemies of China, which have been enemies of China since Abraham Lincoln was a slaveholder, or slaveholder, fighting slavery in 1864. And this is a bizarre facet of Chinese society because we're talking about how we want China to become more like us. And we think in the 1990s, delusionally somewhat, that China was one day going to one day turn out to be more like the West. But and yet they're teaching this propaganda to their children and these kids grow up thinking that these aggressor states still have it out for China. And these statements are fermented to this day. Japan still gets demonized. They're still building shrines in remembrance of the events of World War II, specifically regarding the rape of Nanking. But also on the 70th anniversary of World War II, over 69 television series and hundreds of films were made depicting anti-Japanese storylines. I mean, the propaganda machines are still to this day in full effect. And these kids are growing up learning that America and Japan and the rest are evil. It makes me worry that we can find these parallels within our own countries to be friends. But when you're taught at a young age that America has always been evil and will continue to be evil, or that Japan has been evil and will always continue to be evil... It doesn't make this much easier for a relationship to men when the Communist Party of China is literally, for to preserve their own position of power, is willing to perhaps fight a war. Because that does seem like the direction of this education, is you ferment external pressures. Um, so essentially, it's kind of what Russia does to this day by starting wars in Ukraine or Syria. That's how Putin consolidates power is... You know, the West is against us. We're fighting these wars for our survival. And using uh, fear and patriotism, he's able to consolidate and retain power. And the communists are doing the same way. But the only problem is, if you're going to keep spilling these lines about how evil the Japanese are or the Americans are, that can turn into talks of war very quickly. All of a sudden, these aren't just regular countries that you might have a predicament with, because history is, in a lot of regards, dominoes. You don't just all of a sudden find yourself at war. You have to work yourself there. And it's one event after another, after another, after another. And if the Chinese party is fermenting these ideas that America and Japan are enemies, so all of a sudden when some event might happen in the South China Sea or with the Senkaku Islands, which we'll discuss later on, but if some event were to happen and the Chinese public becomes aware of it, all of a sudden it's like, well, we've been told for so long that these countries are enemies. Why would we not fight them? And that's really concerning because that's how you can find yourself at war. Anyway, that's my spiel about re-education. And we'll have to talk about that later in part three. But honestly, I, the things that you can learn about what modern Chinese students are taught in school these days, it's perplexing. I know America gets some hatred about how they teach events such as America's interactions with the Native Americans or in regards to the Civil War. But what is taught in Chinese history textbooks is just delusional. It's lies. America and China kind of had a falling out after Tiananmen Square. 
for obvious reasons. America didn't like the way China handled the whole issue. But also, China thought that America helped, well, foster the movement along. But unfortunately, the probably the main problem in the relationship would come when shortly after Tiananmen Square, the Soviet Union would collapse in 1991. And America was without equal in the world, and all these organizations that were set up to counter the Soviet Union remained around. It seemed that the military constructs, in particular those in Japan, and South Korea, and the other ones around the Pacific, were no longer pointed at the Soviet Union, but China. The 1990s would be an explosive period for democracy around the world, and Asia, in particular, would be quite potent. It might not be well known, but following World War II, the countries of Asia that were allied to America weren't real democracies. South Vietnam was in a real democracy. South Korea and Taiwan were not were pretty autocratic. Um, and Japan was, for the most part, a one-party ruled country in help, actually, by the Americans. Uh, the CIA was known for supporting the party that was pro-American. But that's a whole other story. Uh, but all of a sudden, it seemed that China was getting surrounded again by these pro-democratic countries that had strong ties to America. The real pivot, though, would occur... Um, in 1995-1996 and be known as the Taiwanese Strait Crisis. If you'll recall earlier, when Taiwan was formed, it was formed under this pretense that there was still only one China. Both China and Taiwan would one day be a united country. No one thought it would be 50 years, or it's still going on to this day, actually. But in the 1990s, however, the leaders that had ruled Taiwan after World War II and had instituted this idea were dying out, and this new breed of politician was emerging um, who weren't born to this idea of one China. Specifically, a guy named Li Tanghui, uh, who was the leader of Taiwan, would give a speech at his alma mater, Cornell University, in 1995. And the very fact that a Taiwanese president was in the U.S., a country that the U.S. didn't even officially recognize, was seen as a spit in the face to China. And this was especially true because Li was the key figure in moving away from the one China policy, and instead of that policy, he was fermenting this idea that Taiwan was its own country with its own Taiwanese people. So Taiwan began to dem democratize in the 1990s. And in 1996, they'd hold one of their first uh, presidential elections. And the Chinese sought to influence this election by using the interesting tactic of shelling the waters around Taiwan with artillery. The hope was that this show of force would make the Taiwanese voters uh, vote for the opponent of Li, because if you vote for Li, you get shelled. That was kind of the... Uh, the thought process. Not very subtle. As the efforts of the Chinese escalated, forces appear to be mobilizing near China's coast for a possible amphibious assault on Taiwan itself. America would eventually get invo involved and would send two battle groups to the Taiwanese Strait, the area of sea between Taiwan and China. And these battle groups were just essentially aircraft carriers and the ships that accompanied them, including submarines, cruisers, and the like. This was seen as, this was a deterrent to China, and at this point in time, China didn't have an answer for this American show of force, and it was a rude wake-up call that all of a sudden, America could just march in these ships just a few hundred miles off the coast of China, and China couldn't do anything about it. And it seemed that all of those constructs that were there after the Cold War, that America said weren't being specifically pointed at China, they seemed to be a lot more pointed at China after this whole event. And this isn't to say that China didn't deserve it. Taiwan's trying to have a democratic election. I don't necessarily agree with the one China policy and the shelling of waters and the movement of forces. Well, you're kind of asking for someone to step up. And concerning America was the policeman at the time, it seems like a reasonable reaction. But regardless, the Chinese took it as this is a domestic issue. America's getting involved and we have no way of fighting against that. And this was a big turning point in the psyche of the Chinese. 
The Chinese would go into overdrive, in fact, to develop things called anti-access, anti-area denial weapons, such as carrier killers and other weapons specifically built to destroy America's offensive assets. They didn't want a China, uh, they didn't want America to ever be able to march in an aircraft carrier group into the Taiwanese Strait without China having a real response to it. Even after this crisis, though, America still held on to this belief that China would democratize one day. But in fact, these past events, the Tiananmen Square riots and then the Taiwanese Strait crisis, it only fermented this idea that America stood in opposition to China because China has always been very kind of aware of history. And one part of its history is known as um, the warring periods, uh, warring state period, which was this period in China where China was just in this continual state of civil war. And China is very aware of the fact that when you have a rising power coming against the incumbent power, the incumbent power would be best served by cutting out the knees, essentially, of the rising power before it, become, before it can become a true threat. And the Chinese thought that they were on their way to becoming that true threat, other than the fact they have 1.4 billion people, but their economy is growing this exponentially. And the fact that America in the Chinese psyche seemed to be getting involved in domestic affairs, either in Tiananmen Square or the Taiwanese Strait crisis, only fermented this view further. At this point in time in the 1990s, China did not have any ability to challenge America in pretty much any realm. Um, and the Chinese were very well aware of this fact. And the Chinese position and strategy would be best summed up by Deng Xiaoping, whom would say in regards to the Chinese strategy, it should, quote, observe calmly, secure our position, cope with affairs calmly, hide our capacities and bide our time, be good at maintaining a low profile and never claim leadership, end quote. And this would be kind of the Chinese strategy for the next 10 to 20 years, um, which was this idea that China should just grow stronger, but never present itself as a threat. But one of the best areas to watch in China is not what it says internationally, the politicians, but see what it's allowing to be said within its country. As time progresses, the Chinese get to show their true colors. So in May 1999, the United States was involved in a NATO-led campaign against the Serbs in Serbia and Kosovo uh, during that whole affair. The United States bombed targets in Belgrade, Serbia, and unfortunately, one of those bombs at the Chinese embassy killing three Chinese. The bombing truly did appear to be an accident. Bill Clinton, president at the time, apologized for the bombings. Uh, Belgrade was a war zone. Mistakes happened in a war. Just look at civilian casualties during any kind of bombardment. They're a sad byproduct. The Chinese government, however, labeled the act as a, quote, barbarian act and swiftly retaliated. Now, this should be said. It's being said internally inside the country, these things, not outwardly to the world. So the Chinese started allowing protests, which were, which were originally peaceful in nature, but they seemingly escalated quickly. The Chinese government ushered marchers to within 25 feet of the United States Embassy, and the crowds would eventually begin to hurl concrete into the windows of the embassy, as well as Molotov cocktails. In fact, uh, workers at the United States Embassy started burning papers because they thought the embassy was going to be overrun. This reaction from the public towards the United States was because the Communist Party was allowing the publication of newspapers and magazines and, um, I guess, television series portraying the United States as this terrible war criminal. Uh, the People's Daily, a propaganda organ of the Communist government, called the bombing of the Belgrade Embassy a barbaric crime and referred to NATO as um, the arch criminal. 
Another newspaper would liken the United States to Nazi Germany in eight specific ways. For example, the article stated that, quote, self-centeredness and ambition to seek hegemony are exactly the same. If we ask which country in the world wants to be the lord of the earth like Nazi Germany did in the past, there's only one answer, namely the United States, which upholds hegemonism, end quote. Could there be much of a surprise that the Chinese people would react in such a manner when they get told such things by their government or by their, sorry, their free press? It would require multiple apologies from the U.S. government and reparations before the ordeal could be settled. And this became the tone of China. They'd say one thing to the world, but internally, uh, with their somewhat state-controlled newspapers, they were allowing this kind of rhetoric to float about. This starkly anti-American, anti-Western, anti-Japanese... But don't worry, one day they're going to be a democratic society just like us, right? The next opportunity for China to show its ambitions um, would come with something called the Nine Dash Line, which is this idea essentially that the South China Sea is actually a China lake. Now, this infringes on the territory of the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, and Indonesia. So a little background on how uh, territories work uh, in regards to ocean is that you have 12 miles, which is your territory. Those 12 miles, if another country were to sail a ship through it, we need to get explicit permission. Same thing goes for aircraft. You can almost think of it as being a part of the land of your own country. Now, 200 miles from your area, uh, from your land is considered, I guess, an economic zone. So you have, you alone have the right to reap the economic benefits of that sea. But if another country needed to pass a ship through it, or a plane, it doesn't need permission. It just can go on unimpeded, just natural business, nothing really to do. So China's argument with the South China Sea is that, well, their rights to the South China Sea predate this law of the land, which came about in the 1980s. Interestingly enough, China believes, or sorry, not believes, they actually signed this United Nations law of the sea, and the United States didn't, um, but that's just beside the point right now. But so China says that it didn't get the draft rules, it just signed on to it. And the, the rights that China has to the South China Sea go back centuries, which is preposterous. It's not remotely true. And so what we have here is an infringement on territory of all those countries we mentioned. So in a lot of cases, China is saying that they have the rights to ter- territory that are 500 miles away from mainland China. And they might be only 50 miles away from the Philippines, or one of these other countries. And so there's always this kind of battle with what China says it's its own area and what the United Nations says is its area. So what happened in 2001 was uh, the United States flew a naval plane into this 200-mile area off the Chinese coast. And so the Chinese say that the South China Sea is theirs in that you have to ask permission to fly a plane through or sail a ship through this area especially in regards to um, some islands that China has um, or claims to have, which is either seized or are not actual islands, but maybe are reefs. Um, And so the United States will usually sail a ship ship or a plane uh, through these areas just to let China know that, hey, by the way, we don't think that you have the right to this territory. And what this amounts to is a pissing contest. And then what China does when the Americans send a ship or a plane through is they usually have a a Chinese ship or a Chinese plane escort the plane or ship through just as a way of saying, we know you're here and this is our way of retaliating against your decision uh, to infringe on our uh, coastal boundaries. So it's kind of silly, but that's just how it works. So anyway, in 2001, a Chinese fighter pilot uh, decided to, well, intimidate a reconnaissance plane from the United States Navy who was flying through the South China Sea. 
um, in that area that's contested. But the pilot ventured too close to the reconnaissance plane, and it actually collided with the U.S. plane, killing the Chinese pilot, and it damaged the United States plane enough that it was forced to land. And the closest place where it could land was on Hanan Island, which is part of the Chinese territory. So the crew members managed to land safely, uh, but they were held for 11 days. And the U.S. plane was dismantled and studied before being returned, a.k.a. reverse engineered. Um, But this is the important part. The Chinese pilot who died became a national hero. He was given posthumously the guardian of territorial airspace and water and was praised for his military struggle against a powerful enemy. But on top of that, the United States was forced to give what they would call a non-apology for the whole ordeal. Otherwise, the members of the U.S. plane were not going to get released. And it was just the standoff. And once again, you have the Chinese media just drawing up this rebellious orchestra of anti-American sentiment over something that was really quite trivial and an accident. But it was just about how America was infringing on Chinese freedoms. But even though they signed on to this law (laughs) back in the 1980s that says that they actually don't have a right to this territory and any ship of any plane from any country can fly into this area. These three situations are relatively emblematic of how the Chinese will approach America going forward. Now, they say different things when they're meeting with Americans at a high-level political kind of area. But presidents meeting with the president or the United Nations, it's very much... China's weak and um, unstable, and China's just trying to grow its economy and maintain stability in its own country. But the rhetoric that's happening in its own country is just, well, vehemently anti-American, anti-West, anti-Japanese. But they just dress that up as an excuse to ensure stability in their own country. And another point here is that China is shaping its own history. When China looks back upon the last 150 years, it doesn't mention the Cultural Revolution or the horrors of the Great Famine, which were caused by the Communist Party. It talks about what the Americans did um, during World War II and their their, uh, proposed, uh, I guess, playing off Japanese against the Chinese or what the British did um, in the Opium Wars. It paints this rosy depiction of China while just painting the West and anyone that really interferes in China as just being malice and enemies of China to this present day. And they're still doing that with modern events that occur. So either it's the Taiwan Strait crisis um, or this reconnaissance plane crisis or the accidental bombing in Belgrade, they're rewriting modern events just like they're rewriting their history. And it's worrying. There would be other events such as these that occur in the 2000s, but I want to make this the cutoff point for this podcast, which is 2001. Two things happened in 2001 which are important for China. One was 9-11 happened in America. And the reason why that's important for China is because prior to 9-11, America really didn't have a focus in the world. It was the worldwide hegemon, but it didn't have a pinpoint focus. In the Cold War, that pinpoint focus was the Soviet Union in Asia. Uh, but after the Cold War, uh, it didn't really have one. 9-11 gave America a new focus, and that was the Middle East. And so for the next, I would say, 10 years or so, America was very much focused on the Middle East. And so the predicaments that arise with China were always going to be in second place as far as the American psyche goes. What came first was Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and anything that was happening over there. China was always going to be, well, not front page news. And that doesn't mean that China wasn't up to stuff. It would be a very important decade for the Chinese because it allowed them to really kind of expand their soft power. And the second thing that happened in 2001, which was important for China, was their entry into the World Trade Organization. And so the WTO is for market capitalistic-based economies, um, which allows them to 
essentially bring all their tariffs down to an agreed rate for different products. And also it gave a place for people uh, to go to court if there were disagreements about trade. It, it civilized the process and it was very much a multilateral institution meant for countries such as America and Canada. But it really wasn't meant for countries like China. China was brought into it purely because the hope and belief is that if as China trades more and more with America, it would become more and more like the West because it would get richer and more democratic. To quote George H.W. Bush, No nation on earth has discovered a way to import the world's goods and services while stopping foreign ideas at the border. End quote. That was the strategy for America and the European Union and the rest of the West in regards to China. Let's keep opening up to it with trade and keep investing in it. And as its students go abroad to, tra- uh, to study and travel, they will inherently become more westernized, more pro-democratic, more capitalistic. Our interest will dovetail. And this is where we're going to leave this podcast is in 2001. We'll talk about recent history between the United States and China in the next one. To summarize what we learned in this podcast, because I know we kind of jump around a lot. And sometimes you might ask, why the hell we're even learning about some of this stuff in regards to China's history? We're not talking about America's recent history. So why are we talking about China's? And that's in part because, well, we talk about why um, China's history matters to the Chinese. But it also matters because the Communist Party makes it so relevant. In fact, the Communist Party in 2013 issued a document forbidding public discussion of historical nihilism, which basically means a critique of the Communist Party's history. This emphasis on history is why the country gets so perturbed when Taiwan seeks a two-China policy, making Taiwan its own country. Or it's why the Chinese people get upset when Japanese leaders visit a shrine that commemorates the fallen Japanese soldiers of World War II. Or why the country is so mad about these foreign influences still that happened 150 years ago during the century of humiliation. The Chinese people are fed this diet that is skewed towards creating this image of China's past that is not accurate. When the biggest oppressor and murderer of the Chinese people is in fact its own government and its failed reform efforts in the 1950s and 60s. But that isn't what the Chinese people are taught. The Chinese government is in some ways pointing a gun at America, Japan, and Taiwan by by creating this history that has been mutated and hyperbolized to service the Communist Party. Whether that gun goes off is another completely different matter. The other takeaway from this whole podcast relies on a quote from Deng Xiaoping. Quote, the development is the only iron law. End quote. The Chinese government following Tiananmen Square set out to ensure continued economic growth to ensure that there is... No political instability, which in their minds would be the only one of the only reasons for revolution would be this idea of a sluggish economy where people would be unemployed or inflation was eradicating savings. No economy can grow forever, however. Recessions occur. And in developing countries, usually a big recession occurs at some point in time as the economy shifts from an export driven economy to a consumption based economy. Think of these two pillars as the foundation of the Communist Party's tactics to ensure their grip on power is maintained. That first pillar being nationalism that paints the communists as the savior of the people from all historic, present, and future hardships. The other pillar being rapid economic growth to kind of distract the citizens from the fact of any atrocities that might be committed by the communist government or the fact that just an autocracy and they're the only, well, developing rich country that has this form of government. But the question really is, what happens when a recession inevitably occurs? When one pillar is knocked away, what happens? If another Tiananmen Square occurs because of economic troubles, will the Chinese just lean more on the other pillar, that pillar of nationalism? The gun, in some ways, is already pointed at Japan, America, and Taiwan, and the countries located around that nine-dash line. Will the Chinese escalate an event into conflict in order to retain power? 
I need I want to highlight the differences here between the West and China. In particular, we'll use America as the example. If Americans want to bring in a new administration in regards to the presidency or Congress or the Senate, we will have to wait till the next election cycle. Or uh, in the case of the presidency, we can just impeach him if we make enough of a fuss. The peaceful transition of power is what makes democracies so stable and successful. If you want something new, you can vote in something new. The only way you can get a transition of power in China, though, or any other autocracy for that matter, is by removing the leader with force or by having his subordinates push him out of the seat of power, or he has to willingly step down. Some would say China has a credibility problem. Their leaders aren't democratically elected. Therefore, the Communist Party's and its present leader could be considered in some ways a regime. Academics argue that China's merit-based system makes the Chinese system legitimate, but that's not really the question I want to pose. It's about change. If an American president gets impeached, he doesn't have to fear for his life because the transition of power is built into the system. There is no transition of power in China, either via its leaders or the Communist Power Party in its entirety. There is no definitive way for the Communist Party to lose control outside of that of basically being forced out or willingly stepping down. Take recent examples. And as in other Leninist systems, it's been bedeviled by the problem of leadership succession. So of the 11 party leaders since 1921, seven of which came after 1949 when the communists took power, only one, uh, Xi Jinping's predecessor, Hu Jintao, actually stepped down from all of his posts in accordance with the timetables of, that the constitution stipulates. Seven were executed or purged, and Xi Jinping actually just rewrote the constitution to lead the country for life or until he wants to step down. If the leaders of the communist party are ever faced with the dilemma of revolution, of people wanting change, whether it be because of democratic forces within the country or because the economy has turned stagnant, do you believe that the, le the leaders will sit idly by as their credibility evaporates? You only have to look at the history books to see what happens to deposed tyrants. It usually is death. Do you believe that the Chinese Communist Party will just step down peacefully, hoping that they won't face the fate that so many leaders around the world would face if they're faced with the dilemma of a power transition? I don't believe so. I believe more weight will be placed on this second pillar of communist power, this nationalism. And thankfully for the communists, they already have a gun aimed at targets. It's just a matter of pulling the trigger when the time is right, or when legitimacy is threatened to such a degree that only a war could ensure their grip on power. And this is not unheard of. Using war as a pretense to motivate or rally the masses is something that Putin's been doing since he essentially came to power. You only have to look at American presidential ratings during wartime to see that war is good for, I guess, uniting the people. And in case of an economic downturn, it does seem that's what the Chinese are relying on. They already have fed this information to the masses that says these are our enemies, this is, we're going to one day consolidate Taiwan into our country. And if push comes to shove, and maybe there's been some unrest in China because of economic problems, they can just decide then and there, let's deal with Taiwan now. This is the appropriate time. It would ensure our credibility to the people, but it also would unify the people behind us rather than have them turning against us because of economic dysfunctions within the country. There is a second option in case of an economic downturn, which could still lead to conflict, and that's that China will never fully obey the rules of the road uh, as far as world trade goes, whether IP protections or full relinquishment of state-sponsored enterprises, which to this day, of the 92 mainland Fortune 500 firms listed on the Fortune 500, 82 are government-owned. That means there's only 10 that are completely 100% private. These 
uh, SOEs as they're called, state-sponsored enterprises, um, allow the government to really insert a hand into the economy. And in case of a financial crisis, you might see SOEs create more assets, which dump into the international markets that drop prices so that they can maintain this idea of full employment. Or maybe they'll go back on IP protections, and during a recession, they might just let the domestic players just use whatever foreign intel- uh, intellectual property that they see willing, and the Chinese party will just step back and say, go ahead, as long as we can have some economic growth, we're going to let you get away with this kind of stuff. Or maybe we'll just go back to the 2000s, where we'll have state-sponsored theft of trade secrets all over again of Western firms and governments. This road can still lead to a bad place. Trade wars have led to hot wars in the past. And as China's economy grows it becomes the, and becomes the Goliath, that it can be, other countries might find it hard to retaliate with their own economic measures as their home economies are just so reliant on China than vice versa. It's not hard to see China using its weight in order to create a system like this, creating a new tributary system where co- countries can trade with China because it has 1.4 billion people. And because of that way, it can get away with some practices which are unfair, which are not allowed in this system that the United States created after World War II. But that might be what China requires in order to ensure that the Communist Party gets to retain its position of power within communist society. They will do what it takes. Now, I don't mean to end on such a dramatic tone, but these should be the big takeaways from this episode, are the two pillars of the Communist Party. It's really the key differences between the rapprochement between the United Kingdom and America and America and China. The United States leadership has to worry about approval ratings and whether they can maybe get elected for another term, but it's not life and death. Republicans and Democrats might get voted out of office, but it doesn't mean that when they do get elected out of office, their names and families could be at risk when they lose power. And this is the conundrum of China, and one that is important to consider as we move into this third episode. The Communist Party will do what it must in order to stay in power because being removed could be bloody. So best take the road that it ensures that it gets to retain its position of power. It will do what it takes. But at what cost? Unfortunately for this episode, history wasn't as funny. (laughs) But there's still some bizarre aspects. So I talked about previously um, how... China still to this day creates these really propaganda-type films depicting the Japanese atrocities in World War II. So in the 70th anniversary of World War II, um, the state approved all these films. In one of the films, actually, (laughs) a a Chinese soldier that's stuck in prison and about how a Chinese actress smuggled a grenade into the Japanese prison uh, with her grenade in her vagina. Um, And when she finally sees her Chinese prisoner boyfriend, she produces the grenade from her vagina, killing the two Japanese guards. Another event, so when America was sailing one of the ships into the uh, South China Sea in this contested territory, uh, the United States impeccable naval ship encountered Chinese vessels. And the Chinese vessels were getting really close for comfort, and the American Navy decided to, I guess, try and get them to back off, um, other than warnings, which were already given. But they turned uh, fire hoses on the Chinese ships, which were worth mentioning here. They were private ships, although private ships in China can sometimes be underneath uh, the direction of the Chinese government. It's kind of a gray area. But anyway, the fire hoses ended up having very limited effect on the fishermen who were on top of the Chinese ship, um, in part because the fishermen's tactic when dealing with the the hoses is to strip to their underwear, um, which allows them to, I guess, have less surface area. So it's a very common sight, I suppose, to see a bunch of angry Chinese men in their underwear getting sprayed by fire hoses. 
So we talked a bit about how China depicts America now as crafting this devilish plan to turn Japan and China against itself. Mm-mm. And it turns out Japan actually paints a similar history, at least in the ultra-conservative nationalist camp. So if you go to this thing called the Yasukuni Shrine in Japan, this shrine is frustrating for Chinese people because this shrine actually hosts... Um, I guess, criminals of war, um, people that were charged with war atrocities, uh, and they're still written on the shrine. Um, it's a big sticking point. But anyway, so they talk about the history of World War II at the shrine. Um, and according to this museum, Roosevelt allegedly provoked the war as the way to get out of the Great Depression. Japan was only trying to assist its brethren in mainland Asia by warding off the American and European threats. I suppose the idea was Japan would invade China, make it a part of Japan, and then they could hold off those evil Americans and Europeans. And that brings us to the end of the show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And in the third episode, we'll really all over the place, actually. That'll be a more interesting episode as it's going to deal with the current affairs of China and America. But also we could talk about history and whether we're following the same pattern. Um, where our countries are going, which is, this is a great time to be talking about America and China, by the way. China just announced retaliatory tariffs against America for Trump's proposed tariffs of 50 or $60 billion. I can't remember the number. But so what a good time to be doing this episode. So I hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned. I should have the next episode out next week. Thanks for listening. Curve. Hey.